after he got elected, he had said that the dreamers should, quote, rest easy. He said, we're, quote, not after the dreamers, we're after the criminals, that is our policy. Today they announced they are, in fact, after the dreamers. He lied for the millionth time in a row. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Emerson Collective, Now This News, On the Media, Counterspin, The Bradcast, The Majority Report, and The Young Turks. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, God-blessed and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. I don't know a life other than what, like, I've lived here, and I've, I just couldn't see myself anywhere else. Like, I don't, I can't even picture it because I've just never been in that situation. I've been in New York my whole life. So it's like, this is my home. Being undocumented isn't who we are. It is not what defines us. If you spoke to me, if you just heard my voice, could you tell I was undocumented? I feel betrayed by this country just because it's it won't recognize me as a citizen. I worked so hard at being a good student. I worked so hard helping my community. I worked so hard to build my career as an artist. For me to not be able to progress is something that I refuse to accept. You feel like somebody greater than you is bullying you. That somebody greater than you is telling you that you are not enough to do all of the things that you know you can do, but are just constricted by something so outside of your own control that you feel helpless, you feel truly helpless. I have a number of students who are dreamers and DACA recipients. I'm sure I have more than I realize. There's definitely a lot of anxiety and fear that I can sense from my students. They can't do what they're there to do, which is to learn. and learn how to be citizens and learn the subject in the classroom they teach if they're afraid for their safety and their family's safety. And as their teacher, I sort of think of myself as I'm a backup parent, and so when they're in my care, I have to protect them. And what if I can't? Yeah, makes me sad. <laughs> that guy is good, but at the same time, like just a glimpse of something that it could be I granted us like a temporary uh, residence and uh, temporary things. You you live in the fear or in the worst of that. It's it's going to end, and then what are you gonna do? I've been living in this country for the past decade already, so I feel like it's pretty much my country as well. There is nothing else that I would love more than invest here, you know, put a business here, buy a house, you know, have like a normal life like everyone else. 
but even with DACA, it does not allow me to um, make these investments because you never know what's going to happen next. I had always kind of had this thought of like, okay, I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to continue building on my career and I can get a good start in like building on this project that my parents started, which was really to lift our family out of poverty, right? DACA has sort of um, proven to be a, a double-edged sword. My own livelihood right now depends on it because if I don't have my work permit, I couldn't have the job that I have. I wouldn't be able to use my degree, right? I, I'm tired of this. Like, I'm tired of living as an undocumented person. I can't keep, like, putting my life on hold for this, right? Like, we can't keep appealing to this country if it really doesn't want us. We have to try to, like, strive to maintain some shred of dignity and some shred of our, like, humanity. They deal with a lot of really unfair systems and laws and practices and it's kids who have grown up and think of themselves as American, right? They go to school alongside kids who look and act and talk just like them. But the repercussions for them, for example, if they get caught um, not swiping a Metro card on the train, um, the consequences for them are so much more than for their U.S. citizen counterparts. It's been so long since we've had reform that even if the laws that are in place made sense at the time, they just don't make sense anymore. And this new economy, the way that people are moving across borders and the reasons why people need to cross borders, um, our laws are just not up to speed. I feel like home is where your parents and your, your loved ones are. And at this moment, my parents are in Mexico. But also, like, on my other uh, part of my heart, like, New York City has been a place that I have lived even more than half of my life. So I call both of them home. Dreamers who have been separated from, from their families. I feel like our parents did so much for, for us to be here. It was tough to not see my parents. But I made a promise to my parents that I was going to be the first one in my family to graduate uh, from college. And this year I will be graduating from, from Queens College and be the first one in my family to have a college degree. When I was 19 years old, uh, my mom worked three different jobs and she would drive without a license. So one day she was going to work and she got stopped by the police. Or the day after she was detained, I took her case and then she was sent back to Peru. Since the day she went back, I haven't stopped sending them like money and, and getting them good things. And with DACA, I've been able to, the most important thing is not feeling like a criminal. I've been able to see the good side of, of America, and, and that's why I love this place. What DACA shows us is that there is potential. We have potential amongst the undocumented, okay? And we have to tap into that potential, right? It shows us that young people who suddenly are given an opportunity make something of their lives. They have so much on their shoulders. I've heard stories of immigrants struggling to go to college, okay? But they work two jobs, they work three jobs, and they succeed. If you're able to do that, shouldn't someone look at you in a different way or be able to say, we can, you know, help you along?
On Tuesday, President Donald Trump delivered on a long-standing campaign promise, an achievement of such grave importance and personal significance that he let someone else announce it. The program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. That was Attorney General Jeff Sessions breaking the news about the generally popular Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, that for five years has offered temporary protection from deportation for undocumented immigrants brought here as children. The onus now falls on Congress to reinstate the program's benefits in the next six months, lest some 800,000 Dreamers lose their work permits and are deported from the country they grew up in. Slate writer and legal analyst Mark Joseph Stern has examined the administration's argument for killing DACA. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. This was from Attorney General Sessions' announcement on Tuesday. The effect of this unilateral executive amnesty, among other things, contributed to a surge of minors at the southern border that yielded terrible humanitarian consequences. It also denied jobs to hundreds of thousands of Americans by allowing those same illegal aliens to take those jobs. Let's start with the claim that DACA contributed to a surge of unaccompanied minors across the southern border. Not true? Not true at all. And we know this for a few reasons. The first is that there is a surge in unaccompanied minors coming to the southern border. But this surge actually began in 2008. And DACA was introduced in the summer of 2012. Now, there was an uptick in this surge more recently, but that uptick occurred in 2011, a year and a half before DACA was announced. And we know that this surge is largely attributable to a sharp increase in gang violence in certain Central American countries, as well as a new willingness by drug cartels, especially those in Mexico, to target children. This really has nothing to do with DACA. And the second reason that we know that is because the policies guidelines required that individuals who apply have already been in the country when DACA was announced and implemented. So it simply wouldn't make any sense for parents in Central America, as Sessions implied, to send their unaccompanied children to this country in order to receive DACA, because one glance at the guidelines would inform them that, in fact, their children aren't eligible. Session alleges that the consequence of DACA has been the loss of hundreds of thousands of jobs for Americans. He doesn't offer any evidence. Economists have failed to come up with any proof that immigrants documented or undocumented are taking jobs from Americans, like Sessions said. In fact, the data seems to suggest that Americans and immigrants are competing for different sets of jobs. But it's also important to note, as the New York Times did on Wednesday, that a huge proportion of DACA beneficiaries have actually entered fields where we need more employees. Employees, specifically hundreds of thousands of new workers in healthcare and education over the next five to 10 years. And we just don't have enough people competing for these jobs. All right. So that covers how Sessions misrepresented the facts. But there is also the nature of DACA itself. He calls it amnesty. 
It does not give individuals lawful permanent residence status. It doesn't give them green cards, and it doesn't put them even on a path to citizenship. What DACA does is take a certain fairly narrow group of individuals, people who were brought to this country unlawfully by their parents when they were children, and formally defers deportation for them. All it does is say the government's not going to deport you unless it has a really good reason. And while you're here, you will have a work permit so you can enter the workforce and pay taxes. What is being said in, let's say, the right-wing media ecosystem that is demonstrably untrue about DACA and its beneficiaries? First, the line that Sessions used, which is that it's caused a humanitarian crisis in the form of unaccompanied minors at the southern border, which we know not to be true. And second, that DACA beneficiaries do not deserve to be in this country because they're criminals. It turns out that the number of DACA beneficiaries who have committed crimes is extraordinarily low, much, much lower than with the general population, something like 0.3%. And a related lie that I've heard a lot on like Breitbart or that kind of corner of the internet is that DACA beneficiaries are criminals by definition because they're living in this country without documentation. That is also not true. Unlawful presence in America by itself is not a criminal offense. It is a civil offense. So you can be fined for living in this country without documentation, but it doesn't make you a criminal. It's a false talking point. You know, apart from the darkest corners of right-wing media, have these notions been accepted in reporting about immigration? You certainly see it in reporting from Fox News, and you also sometimes see it come into articles that try to frame this as a both-sides issue. Just to give an example, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, a well-known nativist, recently claimed on television that a lot of DACA beneficiaries are, quote, gangbangers. NBC published a report that said something like, uh, where some see dreamers, others see gangbangers. It's not true. They certainly don't join gangs at, at an equal rate to citizens. Um, they do not, by and large, have a gang problem. But when these figures of authority throw out lines like this, they tend to get picked up and deployed as sort of the other perspective to this issue. I think that's unfortunate because this is one case where you have one perspective that's fact-based and one that's not. What about the left? Is there progressive rhetoric that also doesn't pass the uh, sniff test? Well, you know, I've noticed that a lot of progressives are defending DACA in terms that seem to depict the program as perhaps more wonderful than it really is. DACA was a stopgap measure. It was always meant to be temporary, and it is far from perfect. And so I think it would be unwise for progressives to frame DACA as anything more than a temporary measure, better than nothing, to be sure, but certainly not the end goal. What we really want is a law that provides these people with actual legal status and puts them on a path to citizenship. DACA doesn't do that, uh, and that's one of its many shortcomings.
Now there are thousands of people marching in the street across the country in support of the immigration program DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Democratic lawmakers are speaking out in support, thus demonstrating what the Washington Post called a lurch to the left. And corporate media are presenting a clear for and against battle over the program that allowed some 800,000 people who came to the U.S. as children to legally work, drive, and travel outside the country. But if the against argument is obvious and obviously bogus, they're criminals who steal jobs while somehow simultaneously draining welfare, the argument of supporters and recipients is not always especially thoughtfully explored. Tina Vasquez is the immigration reporter at Rewire. She joins us now by phone from North Carolina. Welcome to Counterspin, Tina Vasquez. Thank you for having me. While it's being covered in some places as an issue, you know, a litmus test for Democrats or some sort of political volleying on the part of the White House, you heard from a number of young adults who were recipients of DACA. And they had a nuanced understanding of the program. But first, they were clear that it had improved their lives in meaningful ways. What were some of the things they talked about? What has DACA meant for them? I mean, there are overarching things that are very clear, you know, because it provided work authorization, allow people to get driver's licenses. There are still challenges, even if you are a DACA recipient, when it comes to going to college, because in states like mine in North Carolina, they still have to pay out-of-state tuition, which is more than three times the cost for citizens. And so there are still a lot of hurdles, but generally speaking, it allowed people to get better-paying jobs. It allowed them to get jobs in their fields of study. It dramatically increased the type of jobs that they were able to get in terms of how much they were paid, what kind of benefits they received, and enabled a lot of people to go to community college, to go to state universities. So those are just kind of the big picture stuff. A young man that I interviewed from North Carolina was very clear in that DACA for him and for a lot of people in his community helped in ways that American citizens maybe take for granted Mm -hmm. in terms of having a driver's license and being able to safely drive his siblings to school or his parents who are undocumented and who are afraid to drive or having any sort of interaction as undocumented people with law enforcement. He was able to drive them out of state to visit other family members. He was able to travel within the United States and have the proper documentation to be able to show TSA. Before, that was very scary for him. He only had his Mexican passport. So just things like that that we don't think of and then maybe larger overarching things that have really improved their lives. Well, we know that the right-wing story is false and driven by anti-brown and black immigrant animus. Let's not say anti-immigrant, you know, because come on. But I know that many advocates want to caution us from what is sometimes presented as the counter-argument, which is this line that, unlike their parents, DACA recipients didn't do anything wrong. You know, the phrase, through no fault of their own, comes up a lot. Or that really, you know, All of them are working three jobs and going to college at night, you know, and it it isn't that DACA recipients aren't striving, but that picture, some folks seem to suggest, even if it persuades some people in the short term, it's not really long term all that helpful. If I'm speaking to a person who has DACA or an undocumented person and they use that sort of framing, that's up to them to do. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the framing that I use in writing about DACA, I 
avoid phrases like dreamers. I avoid the narrative, you know, that they came here through no fault of their own or that their parents brought them here and it's, you know, it's not their fault. They shouldn't pay for their parents' mistakes because these young people were undocumented before they received DACA. DACA is not a permanent legal status. It's simply a program. And so that kind of language to me demonizes their parents and it demonizes who they were before they received DACA. And I don't think that's helpful to anyone. Their parents made very hard choices to come to the United States. And using that framing isn't at all necessary to illustrate why removing DACA, rescinding DACA is so harmful and so tragic to young undocumented people or young documented people. Can you remind us just a little bit of how we got to DACA? Because, I mean, certainly we know that immigrant advocates fought for it, but it wasn't that it was exactly their their first choice, you know. Um, what was some of the trajectory here? The DREAM Act has been in place since 2001. And so now there's talk of the DREAM Act again. And based on people that I'm speaking to and, and people who've been in the immigrant rights movement for a very long time, it's like sort of reopening a wound. And young people were very, very invested in the DREAM Act and in it providing this pathway to citizenship, and then it just never happened. And then Obama became president, and there was lots of talk of comprehensive immigration reform and large immigration moves that were supposed to be made within his first 100 days of office, and that never happened. And so young people began demanding some sort of administrative relief. And DACA has been called a lot of things from amnesty to citizenship, it's neither of those things. It doesn't provide a pathway to citizenship. But at least for two-year intervals, they knew that they wouldn't be deported. They knew that they could work and they can go to school. And that's all that it's been. But it was very hard won by young undocumented people. And it wasn't just something that was given to them by President Obama. Right. Well, the implication now from media is that there's a possibility that Congress might save DACA. But that seems like a rock that bears looking under. I mean, are there concerns about what it might mean to have Congress work out a deal on preserving DACA? The primary one is the one that's sort of constant. It's that immigration and undocumented immigrants are constantly being used as this sort of bargaining chip. So while helping one population of immigrants that we've deemed acceptable mm -hmm. or young, good people that we should be giving these things to that, that demonizes another group of people and it's often their parents. And so the way this is often set up is that one group of people has to suffer in order to be given other things for other groups of people. And I, and I think with border wall funding, that's certainly a concern. I think to save DACA, that's what will be proposed and that's throwing you know, millions of people under the bus. And that's also really troublesome because the border exists. It's heavily militarized and it has been since President Obama funneled billions of dollars into it and hired many, many Border Patrol agents. It's just, it's unnecessary. And people that I've interviewed who live in those communities will tell you how unnecessary more border wall funding is. But I think that's the game that's going to be played in order to save DACA. Yes, I heard NPR say that Steve Bannon had convinced Trump to quote, spare dreamers and use them as a strategic asset in the coming immigration policy battles, close quote. And I don't think spare means they're what they think it means. Right. Going forward, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty. But some of the people that you heard from said, you know, we're not most worried about falling out of status. We've been out of status, you know, but the database does concern them, not just being newly deportable, but 
you know, being so easily findable. I mean, is that that's a concern that you're hearing? Yeah, that's one that's being expressed a lot. I mean, just the, the amount of information that the Trump administration has and the way that it's already utilizing it when we look into how the voice office is structured and the DHS Vine database, which, you know, has the location and identifying information of undocumented immigrants that are in ICE custody and detention centers and that anyone can sort of go and look up their status updates on their cases and where they are. And now you have this DACA database that not only just includes things like biometrics and personal identifying information for young DACA recipients, but also information on their family and places that they have lived, which also endangers their families who are mixed status or who are undocumented. So it's really, really troublesome. And there is little reason to have good faith in the Trump administration and in thinking that they won't utilize or weaponize this information. I wonder, finally, how you think journalists can contribute to that paradigm shift, to that shift from, you know, let's help the children and punish their parents and and that sort of thing to a more kind of holistic understanding of, of immigration. What what would you like to see change in reporting? I don't think that we should assume that we know the framing that will help mm-hmm. different populations of immigrants under attack right now. A lot of young people that are protesting right now aren't just doing it for themselves and doing it for DACA, but they're doing it for the 11 million undocumented immigrants that currently reside in the U.S. and you know who are their family. And so asking people what would be useful for people to know. You know, if you're interviewing someone who has DACA, what do you want people to know? What do you think is being missed by the media? You know, what are some misconceptions that you think are out there? Let them sort of pave the way. You know, they're living this and they know what's best. Today's episode is sponsored by Away, the team that set out to make a perfect set of luggage inspired by real travel stories. Now, the outside of the bags are made of high-quality, very tough polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance while still being incredibly lightweight. And the inside is packed with goodies, including a removable and washable dirty laundry bag to keep all your clothes separated, and a super-functional compression system that you just kind of have to see to fully appreciate. And if that weren't enough, Away also features a built-in in battery pack with enough juice to charge a cell phone five times so you'll be sure to get to your destination with power to spare in your phone, tablet, or any device charged with USB. And that's the critical feature for me because as the guy who listens to podcasts like it's my job, I always have to keep my phone topped up. Now, if you're finding yourself in need of a new suitcase and you want to upgrade your travel game, then Away is the way to go, and you can take advantage of their lifetime warranty, free shipping to the lower 48, and 100-day trial so you can live with it and travel with it risk-free. So head over to awaytravel.com best, where you'll get $20 off the suitcase of your choice when you use the promo code best. Again, that's awaytravel.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $20 off. One example from that uh, from that address, which was just completely misleading. Uh, go ahead. Well, let's let's go ahead and play this uh, this segment. This is Donald Trump over the weekend from his uh, weekly presidential address. Just this week, we announced a historic immigration bill 
to create a merit-based green card system that ends the abuse of our welfare system, stops chain migration, and protects our workers and our economy. As an example, you cannot get welfare for five years when you come into our country. You can't just come in like in past weeks, years, and decades. You come in, immediately start picking up welfare. Nope. For five years, nope. you have to say you will not be asking or using our welfare systems. Now, the abuse of our welfare system. Trump has brought this up before, and he came up with what he thought was his idea. Let's stop uh, any immigrants from obtaining welfare for five years after they come to this country. That'll stop people from wanting to come here. Uh, last week at uh, a news conference, Trump said the Raise Act, this is this new immigration uh, bill that he's putting forward with a couple of Republican senators. The Raise Act prevents new migrants and new immigrants from collecting welfare. They're not going to come in and just immediately go and collect welfare. That doesn't happen under the Raise Act. They can't do that. In Youngstown, Ohio, last week, he said in one of his campaign rallies, we also believe that those seeking to immigrate into our country should be able to support themselves financially and should not be able to use welfare for themselves or the household for a period of at least five years. Well, that sounds like it makes sense. In truth, you know, it uh, seems like a reasonable, if potentially cruel policy. Don't be. Well, that's right. Don't be coming here, though. And, and then uh, immediately, you know, sucking off the the big welfare teat. I guess, is what he's trying to say. Uh, well, as it turns out, and as we've talked about on this show already uh, in, in uh, months earlier, that's already the case. That's already the law. The 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, that would have been signed under uh, Bill Clinton, I guess, restricted non-citizens' eligibility for major public assistance programs like uh, Supplementary Security Income, Social Security, SSI, Supplemental Nutrition Assistant, or SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps, Medicaid, and uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. They are already barred in general. Legal permanent residents, we're talking about people who are coming in here legally. If, if you're here uh, undocumented, illegally, uh, you're not welcome to those by any measure, but legal permanent residents who get green cards when they uh, come in, they are already not eligible for those four programs unless they have worked in the U.S. for at least five years. Now, there are some exceptions like uh, asylees, uh, people who come here seeking political asylum from their country or, or refugees, people with uh, certain military connections or people who are victims of human trafficking. Now, unless uh, Donald Trump wants to keep out the people who are victims of human trafficking from coming in here and, and you know, finding safe harbor, this is already essentially the law. Now, some public assistance programs, according to The Washington Post, like Social Security and Medicaid, are based on individual eligibility as opposed to the entire household. Um, but others, like SNAP, which is the food stamps, those provide household-level level benefits, meaning if you have a household with two ineligible legal permanent resident parents, say uh, your, your two parents are here on uh, green cards for, an, on, uh, for employment, and they have a baby, they have two babies, for example, who uh, 
those U.S.-born babies are U.S. citizens and they are eligible for food stamps if the uh, household meets the requirements. So, um, the, you know, the whole household shares the benefit in that case because there are two kids, toddlers in that uh, scenario, who need to eat food. A White House spokesman explained to The Washington Post, under the current system, you get welfare through your household. The new legislation will expand the five-year welfare prohibition to the households of all immigrants coming in on the points system and not just the immigrant themselves, as is the current law. So this point system they're talking about are these uh, uh, basically the RAISE Act would make it uh, would would essentially cut legal immigration in half over the next decade. And it would be based on uh, a certain point system for these employment based green cards. And uh, in that case, if you come in under that and you don't have enough money to feed your U.S.-born children, they and you are all out of luck. In a 2016 report, uh, the libertarian think tank Cato Institute warned against measuring welfare use by household because it does not reveal, they said, who receives the benefits, leaving the impression that the immigrants are the intended legal beneficiaries when they are often excluded from these programs already. The intended beneficiaries are these children. These U.S. citizen children Correct. who would presumably should not be losing their right to that assistance just because of their parents. Because of their parents, who, by the way, are not even here illegally. They're here legally under the green card system. But we still want to deny them any such benefits. Randy Capps at the nonpartisan think tank uh, Migration Policy Institute says that such a policy, if it were enacted, would violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. He says, I don't believe it would stand a legal challenge that a U.S. citizen child with a parent who is a recent legal immigrant gets treated differently under the law than a child who has U.S. born parents. So um, this is just one uh, lie that uh, Trump has been repeating over and over and over again, giving the idea that, oh, you know, all of these immigrants are flooding in because they're getting all of these free benefits the minute they get here. No, almost every single one of them is barred for five years. So he's just misleading the chumps and dupes and suckers who listen to him at his campaign rallies. But he's also using these presidential addresses, even while he's on vacation, to misinform the American public. The uh, uh, the uh, Washington Post fact checker gives the claim three Pinocchios. But Only I guess three? that's yeah, I was going to say, well, it's out of a four Pinocchio system. So I guess uh, there's some room there because of the context and uh, the communicate uh, the, the confusion about who does and doesn't which, you know, immigrants are or aren't welcome to uh, yeah. to welfare. Right. Uh, a nuance that that president, this president, our president doesn't much give a damn about. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism 
tell Congress to pass the DREAM Act now. Now, you know what's at stake and you understand the immorality of Trump's decision to end DACA. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase. This is what you can do right now and over the next six months to defend DACA recipients and all DREAMers in the United States. Go to weareheretostay.org. This campaign site is powered and updated by United We Dream, the first and largest immigrant youth-led organization in the nation. The Take Action tab on the website is a one-stop shop for the most effective actions you can take to defend dreamers and includes critical resources for those now at risk and information about the impacts of this cruel decision. As you might expect, the primary focus of the campaign right now is an immediate and clean passage of the DREAM Act of 2017. No border militarization amendments, no bargaining chip political maneuvers, just a clean passage of a bipartisan-sponsored bill to save 800,000 people from being forced to leave the lives they've built, and for many, the only home they've ever known. You can put pressure on Congress to do this by clicking the Call Congress Action button on the Action page at weareheretostay.org. There you'll find phone numbers and call scripts for the key decision makers, House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, and Representative Raul Labrador of Idaho. To add more pressure, you can also click the Tweet at Congress button and use the campaign's tool to flood vulnerable Republicans in Congress with tweets demanding that they stand on the right side of history and pass the DREAM Act without amendments. The action page also has an Attend an Event button that will bring you to a comprehensive searchable map with rallies and events happening around the country and hosted by various organizations. Find one near you ASAP so you can join. This page also provides the ability to sign up and host an event, as well as a list of members of Congress, Republicans, and Democrats that are potential targets for your actions. The more pressure we put on Congress right now, the more likely we are to avoid a gap in protection for young immigrants. All of these actions must continue to happen until the DREAM Act is passed. Time is of the essence, so we urge you to go to weareheretostay.org right now, get familiar with these actions, sign up for updates, and share the resources. Don't forget to use the hashtag HereToStay when sharing. The decision to end DACA has wreaked havoc on hundreds of thousands of our neighbors, friends, co-workers, and classmates. If you or someone you know is impacted or having a hard time in the wake of this news, please check out the mental health resources and the mental health emergency toolkit available at weareheretostay.org. You can also RSVP for the campaign's community calls about health insurance and workplace rights for DACA recipients by texting the phrase DACA call, all one word, to the number 877-877. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional tools and resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if protecting people from Trump doing the bidding of white nationalists is important to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about telling Congress to pass the DREAM Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change 
There's a great deal to be said about Donald Trump's pardon for criminal racist Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, charged with criminal contempt for refusing to comply with a court's order that he stop unconstitutionally profiling Latinx people. As Color Line's Catherine Lizette Gonzalez reminds, Arpaio also reinstated chain gangs, ran an outdoor tent city jail he himself described as a concentration camp, denied women detainees menstrual hygiene products, and put people in solitary confinement if they didn't understand instructions in English. He ran a 24-hour webcast featuring pre-trial detainees being arrested, strip-searched, and held in cells until that was ruled illegal. The suicide rate in jails Arpaio ran was 24%. Compare that to 6% in Cook County, Illinois, or 9% in New York City. And while he was busy illegally harassing people of color, he failed to investigate more than 400 cases of sexual assault, including on children. One of the things that should also be noted is how corporate media aided and abetted the man outlets, including CNN and NPR, introduced with his own preferred sobriquet of America's toughest sheriff. Remember when he had his own show on Fox's reality channel, Smile, You're Under Arrest, in which nonviolent offenders were pranked into getting arrested for viewers' amusement? Arpaio was a frequent guest of CNN's Lou Dobbs, with a chummy relationship with Larry King. But, as reporter Aura Bogato wrote for FAIR in 2009, while Arpaio was a cable TV favorite, the Latinx people his policies targeted were not. Over a year, Bogato found, Arpaio appeared on cable TV at least 21 times, while Latinx people were included in the conversation just twice. In one illustrative instance, on the CNN show State of the Union, host John King said, quote, We sat down with Sheriff Arpaio this week while we were here in Arizona, but we also talked to a woman named Ruby, who is in this country illegally and recently lost her job. Let's listen for just a second. Close quote. Ruby got a chance to say she came to this country to work and live with dignity, but not much more, because CNN thought she and everyone she represented deserved just a second. The Arizona Republic editorialized that Arpaio's pardon, quote, was a sign of pure contempt for every American who believes in justice, human dignity, and the rule of law, close quote. And they aren't wrong, but media might also use this incident to examine their own role in giving a pass and a platform to a person who gleefully, purposefully flouted the law in order to carry out a racist campaign. If you're hiring, then you know that finding great talent can be tough, and there are so many places where you can post your job opening in the hopes of finding the best candidates, it's hard to know where to start. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's actually what makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% 
90% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours. No juggling of emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash best of the left. Maybe we should go back to um, his pardoning of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Maybe, maybe, and I guess this is an argument, but he may be the most famous racist uh, that we have in the country. Is it possible? Maybe just this week. I mean, aside from the president himself. There is a reigning champion. I'm just saying that Arpaio as a, um, you know, it's not like, I mean, at least Trump is also president, right? That's why we know Trump's name. But uh, Arpaio just has the longest list of demonstrable racism and her. He's actually done stuff. Racist acts. Like real, real stuff. Let me put it this way. The, one of the most famous non-elected at the moment racists in the country. That, that, I think that's a safe way of doing it. Right? Like national, fame. national fame. I mean, I'm sure, like, if you lived in, like, North Carolina, you'd have a long list of, of people that you're Wait till he challenges Jeff Flick. Right, exactly. Um, here is Donald Trump last week. Um, and now, remember, I mean, context, contemplate this, okay? Now, over the past 10 days, Donald Trump refuses to come out and announce his own reversal of obama's policy on daca right send sessions out there to do it and of course jeff sessions uh this is the way i'm gonna make sure i stay in the in the administration by proving that i can be the one to uh handle all the the darky policies and then trump also, in another sign of abject weakness and cowardice, uh, pardons Arpaio Friday night, right? Let's see, he do it about like 8 p.m. And this is uh, Trump defending the timing of the decision on Monday, I guess it was. Here he is with a question from, uh, is this uh, Roberts? Is that it? Uh, John Roberts, okay. In the middle of uh, Hurricane Harvey hitting on Friday night, you chose to pardon former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. I wonder if you could tell us what was behind your thinking for issuing a pardon uh, for the sheriff. And as well, what do you say to your critics, even some in your own party, who say it was the wrong thing to do? Well, a lot of people think it was the right thing to do, John. And actually, uh, in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assumed the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Uh, and I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. Uh, he's done a great job for the people of Arizona. He's very strong on borders. 
very strong on illegal immigration. He is loved in Arizona. Sheriff Joe is a patriot. Sheriff Joe loves our country. Sheriff Joe protected our borders. And Sheriff Joe was very unfairly treated by the Obama administration, especially right before an election, an election that he would have won. So, and he was elected many times. So, um, I stand by my pardon of Sheriff Joe, and I think the people of Arizona who really know him best would agree with me. Thank you very much. That's my statement. Uh, so, Sheriff Joe was guilty of contempt of court for violating a federal judge's order um, to stop being so blatantly racist <laughs> and uh, with his abject uh, treatment of of prisoners, including immigrants and other detainees. He had these uh, outdoor tent cities in the Arizona desert heat. He routinely disparaged Latinos, calling them things like wetbacks, Mexican bitches, effing Mexicans, and stupid Mexicans. He would publicly humiliate prisoners, he would handcuff and detain children and pregnant women on his immigration raids. Uh, he sent his taxpayer-paid deputies to Hawaii to secure President Obama's birth certificate. Like I say, he was my partner. He made me. In many ways, he made me. I need my he made the prisoners wear pink underpants for some reason. Yep. Uh, it was a racial profiling case where he was violating a judge's order. According to the Phoenix New, New Times, they listed some of the uh, stories that they had in covering um, Arpaio for more than 20 years. Uh, among the 20-some-odd stories... I mean, uh, some of the the 20 some odd stories that she listed over those 20 years. He ran a jail that he described as a concentration camp. Prisoners died at an alarming rate, often without explanation. One of his jailers nearly broke the neck of a paraplegic guy who had the temerity to ask for a catheter. He marched Latino prisoners into a segregated area with electric fencing as a publicity stunt. He invited visitors to its website to vote for the mugshot of the day to mock the photos of Latino detainees. Under Arpaio, the department failed to investigate hundreds of sex abuse cases, many which involved children. According to reporter Ray Stern, in February 2012, rapists and child molesters got away with their crimes. There was the story of Ambrett Spencer, one of nearly 1,600 pregnant women who went through Arpaio's jails. She was nine months pregnant, had internal bleeding. Jail officials ignored it. Um, her baby died. They waited nearly four hours to get her to the delivery room. 
Her baby died from blood loss. I mean, just insane. The Arpaio uh, uh, jail, I guess, guards tried to prevent her from seeing the baby before they buried it. So that's the guy that Donald Trump calls his partner and uh, pardoned in the in the middle of when he thought there would be a lot of ratings. Now, during the campaign, Donald Trump had said that he would target uh, undocumented immigrants. Nobody's surprised by that. Uh, he also said that he would. Uh, he was considering going after the Dreamers, the people uh, that DACA protects. And we he announced today uh, that he would do that. But after he'd gotten into office, he had changed his tune because uh, he's Donald Trump. He says everything, completely contradictory things, hypocritical things. He doesn't care. He's a classic sleazy politician. So at the time, after he got elected, he had said that the dreamers should, quote, rest easy. He said, we're, quote, not after the dreamers, we're after the criminals, that is our policy. Today they announced they are, in fact, after the dreamers. He lied for the millionth time in a row. He said the dreamers, quote, shouldn't be very worried. He said, where you have great people that are here that have done a good job, they should be far less worried. He said his administration was, quote, not after the dreamers, we are after the criminals, adding, that is our policy. Once again, a total lie. Today announcing that the end of DACA, he will be going after the dreamers. And having nothing to do with criminality, that's just not the case. And he says, yeah, okay, they're not criminals, don't care. 97% of them are in school or have a job, don't care. They put in over $60 billion to the US economy, don't care. I don't care, they don't look like me. I lied to you, <laughs> are you still surprised? No, we're gonna get rid of them, because my whole campaign is based on fear and hatred. My base is in fact, a lot of them, not all of them. Again, the only thing Hillary Clinton was right about, half of them are deplorable. They don't like people that don't look like them, and they, in fact, they're kind of bitter that those dreamers are successful. They're bitter that they have jobs, that they went to college. And they look at them with great scorn and, and think, why not me? And they don't think, hey, maybe that's my failing. Maybe I should grab some bootstraps. They just look at the people who made it and go, they don't look like me. And uh, they must have taken my job. They must have taken my wages. And they don't think, hey, maybe your wages have been kept down. By the people in power, not by the powerless. Maybe your wages got kept down by people like Donald Trump, who didn't want to pay you more than $7.25 in minimum wage. Even though if it kept up with inflation, it'd be way higher now. It'd be at least $11. But they don't want to pay you those wages. And then they turn around and go, don't worry, I'm not the one keeping down your wages. As they suppress them, keep them down, and won't let them up, they go, oh, it must be the brown people. 
And then they turn around and say, oh, don't worry, guys, don't worry. I'm not going to go after the dreamers. <laughs> Just kidding. Deport them. He said, at Donald Trump said, I do not favor punishing children, most of whom now are adults, for the actions of their parents. But we must also recognize that we are a nation of opportunity because we are a nation of laws. In other words, oh, golly gee, this is him speaking today. Oh, did I break their backs? <laughs> I didn't mean to break their backs. I'm just doing because I, oh, I have no choice. I must follow the rule of law unless, of course, your name is Sheriff Joe Arpaio, in which case, you're free to break the law and I'll just pardon you later because you hate Latinos like I hate Latinos. And he said, I look forward to working with Republicans, Democrats, and Congress to finally address all the issues in a manner that puts the hardworking citizens of our country first. By the way, what does he mean by that? Part of the reason that he, they're killing DACA and, and now beginning to uh, gear up to kick out all the dreamers from the country is because he wants to pass a new law and he wants to get the Democrats to agree to build a goddamn wall. So he's saying, hey, look, I can kick him out any second because I just took away Obama's executive order. So if you don't want me to ruin their lives, I've got 800,000 hostages. So hurry up and build that wall, otherwise I throw the hostages out. And by the way, destroy the American economy in the, in the meanwhile. You think he has any moral qualms? No, he doesn't. So this is his plan. He's a disgusting human being. We just heard clips today, starting with an ad featuring Ronald Reagan, produced by the Emerson Collective. Now this news brought together the series of voices of DACA recipients. On the media broke down some of the misleading rhetoric around DACA. Counterspin laid out what DACA does and doesn't do for recipients. The broadcast clarified what access immigrants have to social programs. Our activism for today is in support of the DREAM Act. Counterspin then told the story of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and the majority report went into further detail on Arpaio and Trump's pardon. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks lay out the short and sweet explanation of the political calculation being made to hold 800,000 people hostage. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in um, about actually your last rerun, the episode regarding the drugs and so forth. And Act 4, Challenge Everything You Know About Drugs. I took a little issue with this, and I think I did last time that this was played, but I certainly don't think I called in about it. And I don't, I didn't read the book, I didn't look at the, the studies and so forth, but when they were talking about crack addicts, and in my experience in working with substance abusers, I've seen... When you have a $5 reward and a, um, or a $5, you know, uh, equivalent of, of crack, you get about a 50-50 chance they're going to take it either way. But when you throw $20 there, uh, people with suffering from addiction to go, well, with $20, I could buy a whole lot more crack than what they're given. So let me take the money and then I can go out in the street and buy $10 worth of crack and still have $10 left over for later. So I'm not I'm not necessarily buying that piece of it. And also when they're talking about 
um, crack babies. I, I agree with the medical aspect, but the piece that's missing with regards to upbringing of crack babies or, or really anybody that's uh, born into a family situation like that is there's not the nurturing and the support infants need and the tension needed to to infants and children to grow up and live in a become um, cuddled and um, form those bonds that are necessary for a child. Anyway, those that's my basic response to that. I, the rest of the episode I thought was great. I think everything, um, Act 5, the Part 1 and Part 2, with regards to um, John Harry, I thought was fantastic, and I thought it was a great episode overall. But I just that's the one piece that I just kind of objected to. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Thanks, and keep being awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I got to tell you that today's episode, it brought an image to mind. And I have to share that with you, but start from the beginning and give you some context. So maybe a year ago or something, I started listening to the Rush Limbaugh podcast where he puts out like a one minute rant most days. And what I have gotten out of this from listening over a long period of time is is not so much his opinions on any given specific issue, but some themes have started to come out and that's what's been the most interesting is, is how these themes start to come out. And, uh, the theme on immigration, it appears to be an adherence to the law. That's what he presents. He wants you to believe that what he is you know, describing is and adherence to the law, and we are a nation of laws, and that's the whole point. And so as an example, what he will very often do is tell the story as written in a newspaper somewhere of some horribly tragic event that happened where an undocumented immigrant had something terrible happen to them or had their family torn apart and you know was deported or whatever, you know, something along those lines. And you know, so he'll like read through this story or sort of give you the gist of it. And it makes, you know, the, the average person probably would think like, oh, my God, that, that sounds terrible. Why are the laws we have resulting in this kind of a terrible situation? Should we do something to maybe change the law so this doesn't happen again? But he, he lays that out and he says, now listen to this. You know, the New York Times or whoever he's reading from wants you to feel bad about this story. Boo-hoo. But you shouldn't feel bad because these people were breaking the law, and that's what really matters. They were here illegally, and whatever happened to them, no matter how horrific, is what should have happened to them because they were breaking the law and therefore don't have the right to anyone's pity, don't have the right to any sort of, you know, some semblance of justice because, you know, he may even admit, uh, not likely, but he may even say like, yeah, this is a bad situation, but they brought it on themselves because they broke the law. Like that's as far as his logic goes. And, and so, you know, as I say, he wants to present this theme of conservatives and himself, especially being in favor 
of following the law. And, you know, what he misses is that the theme he's really presenting is an absolutely unquestioning adherence to law with no amount of critical thought being applied whatsoever, which is a dangerous way to approach the world because if you find yourself presented with fundamentally unjust laws that need to be changed, well, you're not going to see it. You're only going to see what is the law and what isn't the law, and it is the way it is, and so we have to follow it, and there's nothing that can be done. And and so what this made me think of is this scene uh, that the vast majority of you, I think, will recognize. Uh, it's, it's not the holidays yet, but if you can recall from A Christmas Story, one of the, one of the more famous scenes where you know the kid has been triple dog dared into sticking his tongue onto the flagpole, and he doesn't believe his tongue's going to stick, but he you know he gets hassled into it, and so eventually he does, his tongue sticks, and he freaks out completely, just as the bell rings. And so a bunch of kids who want nothing to do with it run. And, you know, two of them, Ralphie, the main character, being one of the two, they sort of hang back like, oh, man, you know, like my buddy's really in trouble. Like he's in a bad situation. He's crying. He's traumatized and he's stuck. I kind of feel like I should stay and help. But Ralphie's torn. And eventually he concludes I can't stay. The bell rang. But what are you going to do? I don't know. The bell rang. Yeah. So ultimately, there's nothing he can do, no matter how unjust the situation, no matter how much someone needs his help, he cannot help but follow the rule because he's eight years old and can't think past that. So he just has to unthinkingly, unquestioningly follow the rule damn the consequences. And and that is exactly what conservative argument makes me think of a lot of the time. And I don't mean that all conservatives are you know, act like they're eight years old, and I don't mean that none of them are capable of critical thought. I mean, very often, the arguments they make come up short. And so, you know, you hear something like, uh, you know, sanctuary cities, Conservatives argue that that is just a flagrant flouting of the law and a bunch of liberals trying desperately to uh, break as many laws as they can so that they can help people who are here illegally who will ultimately go on to commit more crimes. That's how some people will present that. But on the other hand, you talk to police in these sanctuary cities and they say, no, no, no. What you have to understand is that sanctuary cities give us the ability to prioritize our efforts. And one of the things that we recognize is that in order to keep crime down and in order to punish actual bad guys, we need people to be willing to work with the police. We need people willing to uh, communicate with the police to report crimes. And if people feel like their immigration status is in question, they will simply not report crimes. And that allows bad guys to get away. So as a police force interested in putting bad guys away, 
we're in favor of sanctuary cities. So you make that argument to a conservative very often, and their response is, yeah, but the bell rang. That, that's as far as I can think on this. And, you know, with these DACA kids, you can argue all you want that, look, they've been here since they were born, so it's completely immoral to ship them off to another country. They actually commit far fewer crimes than natural-born citizens. They have jobs and are going to school. They pay taxes. So they, you know, contribute enormously to society in measurable and immeasurable ways. So maybe we shouldn't just kick them out of the country. And the response is, yeah, but the bell rang. What can I do? I adhere to the law and I have no critical thinking skills or I wasn't taught civics in high school or for whatever reason, they can't see past the law to think or consider the possibility that, well, shit, maybe we just need different laws and then they can adhere fiercely to those. And this isn't nearly the only issue that this sort of thinking comes up, you know, uh, you know the drug war. Like, well, maybe we shouldn't uh, treat drugs as crimes. Maybe we should treat them as a medical and social problem to be treated. And uh, besides, the way we uh, deal with the drug war is super racist and ends up adversely affecting minority communities. I, yeah, but the bell rang. What could I possibly do about all of this enormous injustice and waste of money and human potential. The bell rang. I can't get out of that. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, as always, keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook, which helps others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder